In this episode, we're going to hear from the man behind the amazing and impactful ministry through the Bible. Listeners ride along on the Bible bus, as he called it, from Genesis to Revelation in five years' time. Through the Bible still airs today, and some people are actually surprised to learn that J. Vernon McGee passed away over 30 years ago. I'm Elise, and you're listening to Revive Radio. John Vernon McGee was born in Hillsboro, Texas in 1904. When he was 14, he lost his father in a cotton gin accident while working at a cotton mill in Oklahoma. After that, his family moved to Nashville, where he worked as a bank teller. He graduated with a Bachelor of Divinity from Columbia Theological Seminary and Master of Theology and Doctor of Theology degrees from Dallas Theological Seminary. His bank manager actually paid for him to attend seminary, which was incredibly, incredibly generous. His first pastorates were all Presbyterian churches. It was while pastoring one of these churches that he met his wife, Ruth. The two had a daughter who was born prematurely and died shortly after she was born. They named her Ruth Margaret. He talked about losing his daughter in a sermon entitled, Death of a Little Child. He also wrote a small pamphlet under the same name. I will actually link it in the description in case anyone would like to read it or share it with someone else. In 1967, he began the Through the Bible Network. He did a systematic study of each of the 66 books of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation that took him five years to complete. His straightforward, friendly, approachable nature made the broadcasts incredibly successful and impactful. While teaching through the book of Hebrews, Dr. McGee said, The only way you and I are going to stay close to Jesus is to stay close to His Word. That's why we're spending time on the Word of God, and the reason I read letters from people on the air. They say, For the first time I found out about the joy of the Lord. The Christian life has been a yoke on them. All they knew was duty and discipline. But when you spend time studying the Bible, you can't help but be drawn to the person of Jesus. That's what you should listen for in the letters we read. Listen for the joy of walking close to Jesus. Since McGee's death in 1988, Through the Bible has been translated into more than 100 languages and is heard on over 400 radio stations. As a young pastor still at his first church, he said he had the greatest encouragement. It was from a country boy wearing high-buttoned yellow shoes. After a morning service, he came to speak to me. He groped for the words, then blurted out, I never knew Jesus was so wonderful. He started to say more, but choked up and hurried out of the church. As I watched him stride across the field, I prayed, Oh God, help me to always preach so that it can be said, I never knew Jesus was so wonderful. Today we're looking at John that was written for the wretched man. And we shall see who that wretched man is. It's generally assumed that the Gospel of John is easy to understand. Often you hear the cliché, the Gospel of John is the simple Gospel. And the simplicity of the language has deceived a great many folk. It's written in monosyllabic and disyllabic words. You just drop down anywhere. Let me just lift out a couple verses. Notice how simple these words are. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. 
But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Now, we have no problem with the words themselves. But actually, we're dealing here with the most profound gospel. Take a, an expression like this. Ye in me, and I in you. That's in John 14, 20. Seven words. One conjunction, uh, two prepositions, and four pronouns. And you could ask any child here that's in the fourth grade. You could ask him the meaning of any one of those words. He could give you the meaning of it. But you put that together, ye and me, and I and you. And the most uh, profound theologian, the greatest philosophers, never been able to probe the depths of the meaning of, those, of that expression. Ye and me, we know it means salvation. And I and you, and that's sanctification. But beyond that, none of us can go very far in this. We think sometimes, because we know the meaning of words, we know what is being said. The words are simple, but the meaning is deep. And that's what you have in the Gospel of John. Jerome said of this Gospel, John excels in the depths of divine mysteries. And no truer statement was ever made. Dr. A.T. Pearson put it like this, it touches the heart of Christ. And though it is assumed it's the simple gospel, it's not always assumed that John's the author of it. The Bauer Tübingen School in Germany years ago began an attack upon the gospel of John. And this has been a, a place where the liberal has really had a field day. I had a course in seminary, even in my day, and one semester we studied the authorship of the Gospel of John. The professor finally came out at the end of the course by saying he thought that John wrote it. And one of the fellows in the class, quite a wag, he said, well, I believed it before I started, and I believe it now, so I just wasted a semester. May I say to you, we're not going to waste time this morning relative to the authorship of the Gospel of John other than to mention, too, that we make it quite obvious that John is the writer of it. One of the reasons that they felt John might not be the writer was because Papias, and I've quoted him now for each one of the Gospels, was thought never to have said anything about the authorship of John. But Professor Tischendorf, the German who found the uh, manuscript that's probably our best manuscript of the Old Testament, Olive, down in uh, St. Catherine's uh, Monastery in the Sinaitic Peninsula, this man was working in the Vatican Library, and he came upon an old manuscript that has a quotation from Papias of Hierapolis in which he says, that John was the author of this gospel and that he was a student of John, that he studied in under him. I personally wouldn't want any better authority than that. 
But Clement of Alexandria, who lived about 200 A.D., makes the statement that John was persuaded by his friends and also moved by the Spirit of God. He wrote a spiritual gospel. And I think that that's what we have uh, here that we're looking at. And that there's no, uh, in my mind, there's not a shadow of a doubt but what John is the author. But the more significant question is, why did John write his gospel? And it was the last one written, probably close to 100 A.D. All the apostles were dead, and the writers of the New Testament were all gone, and he alone was left. And here, when we attempt to answer this question, we find again there's a diversity of theories here. There are those that say that it was written to meet the first heresy of the church, which was Gnosticism, that actually uh, some of the Gnostics believed that he was God but not man at all, that they thought they saw him but didn't. And Irenaeus expressly makes the statement that the purpose of John was to confute the Gnostic Serenthus. But Tholuck makes it very clear that, that this is not a polemic gospel at all, and he's not attempting to meet that issue. Also, there are those that say that it's a supplement to what the others had written. He just added some other material. But Hayes answers that by saying this gospel is no mere patchwork to fill up a vacant space. You see, these theories do not give an adequate answer uh, to account for all the peculiar facts that are in this gospel. And the true explanation has to account for all the peculiar facts that are in the gospel of John. And in my judgment, the only explanation that is satisfactory is that John wrote at the request of the church, which already had three gospels, and they knew about them. They were being circulated. And they wanted something more spiritual and deep, something that would enable them to grow. And that's exactly what Augustine, the great uh, saint of the early church, said. Let me give his quotation in the four Gospels, or rather in the four books of the one Gospel. The apostle St. John, not undeservedly, with reference to his spiritual understanding compared to an eagle, has lifted higher and far more sublimely than the other three. His proclamation, and in lifting it up, he has wished our hearts also to be lifted. That is the purpose of the Gospel of John. That is the reason that he wrote. Accordingly, therefore, when you come to the Gospel of John, he does not take you to Bethlehem. I want to say this today, and I'd like to say it now after Christmas very kindly. You will never grow spiritually by singing umpteen times, O little town of Bethlehem, at Christmas time. I don't know why. Some people feel very religious at Christmas time if they just keep singing that song. May I say to you, John won't take you to Bethlehem because he wants you and me to grow as believers. John takes you down the silent corridors of eternity through the vast 
emptiness of space to a beginning that is not a beginning at all. In the beginning was the Word. And I don't care where you put your pegs down in eternity. Go back now. They say that this world is created three billion years ago. I think they're pikers. I think it's been around here a hundred billions of years. What do you think God's been doing in eternity past? Twiddling his thumbs? May I say to you, he had a great deal to do in the past. And he has eternity back of him. And so when you say in the beginning as far back as my little mind can go and your mind can go back into eternity past, put down your pegs and Jesus Christ comes out of eternity to meet you. In the beginning was, not is, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. Then come on down billions of more years. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And then John, in the 14th verse, takes another step. He says, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. The Greek philosophers and the Greek mind that Luke wrote to would stop right there and say, we're through with you. We can't follow you. And they would not have they would have followed Luke. And then he even goes farther. John does in verse 18. No man has seen God at any time. How does God look? What does he think? Do you know really anything about him today? No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him exegeted him, led him out in the open where man can see him, or as Wesley put it, God contracted to a span so that you and I can come to know him. A man who had no origin, a man who comes out of eternity, born in Bethlehem, yes, unto us. A child is born in Bethlehem, but unto us a son is given, and he's the one that comes out of eternity. Now, Dr. Luke puts him in a, in a test tube, pours acids on him. Dr. Luke, who's a doctor, he looks at him under the microscope. He comes to the same conclusion as John, but his method is altogether different. You could never call John's method scientific. You can call Luke's method scientific. And that's the reason the Christian who has come to a knowledge of Christ and faith in him, he doesn't need to have the virgin birth gone over with him again. He doesn't need these things. He believes them. And therefore, when he comes to the gospel of John, he finds sheer delight and joy unspeakable as he reads the Gospel of John and studies it. And unfortunately, though, he thinks the unbeliever ought to have it also. And you'll find it's used in personal work more than any other gospel. And after all, doesn't the average Christian say, well, it's the simple gospel, is it? It's profound. It's for believers. It's to enable them to grow, if you please. 
When I was pastor in Pasadena, I had a doctor friend that was, uh, because of his position, was able to get together students at Caltech. And he had a Bible class with him. Do you know what he taught? <laughs> You're right, Gospel of John. He told me, he said, you know, I really shook that bunch of boys with the first chapter. I met him several weeks after that, asked him how the class is getting on. Oh, he said they quit coming. Well, after all, they had been in a school where you pour things in a test tube, where you look at things under a microscope. I said, why didn't you take the gospel of Luke? Oh, I wanted to give them a simple gospel. Well, you didn't. It's profound. It's for the believer. And then there was a seminary professor not too long ago in this area. He was asked to take a group of businessmen at a noon luncheon and to teach the Bible. You know what book he took? You're right. He said, they don't know very much, so I give them the Gospel of John. I wish he'd given them the Gospel of Mark. That's, for the, that's the Gospel of Action. That's the gospel of power. That's the gospel for the strong man. But he gave him the gospel of John. The gospel of John's for believers who already believe. And John 13 through 17, you can write a sign over it. For believers only. And you can put under that, all others stay out. Don't think that section was ever meant for an unbeliever. He took his own in the upper room, revealed to them things that enabled them to grow. And no other gospel writer gives that. Why? Because they are the evangelists that are presenting Christ as the Savior of the world. Somebody says, but isn't John doing that? Yes, he is. But he's doing it for believers so they can grow. John has more about the resurrected Christ than any other gospel. In fact, all the others put together. Paul said, though we know, knew him after the flesh, we don't know him anymore after the flesh. We know him now as the resurrected Christ. So John attempts to give those appearances of his, and he mentions seven of them. I wish I could go into detail. The first one was one of the most dramatic appearances to Mary Magdalene there in the garden. The second, to the disciples in the upper room, Thomas absent. The third appearance, again that evening, Thomas present, and he appears one week later. Then we have him appearing by the Sea of Galilee. They were out fishing. He asked the question, do you have any fish? He's going to ask you that someday, and he's going to ask me that. Been doing any fishing recently? Well, you catch them only the way he tells you to. You have to fish at his instruction. And then he prepared breakfast for them. I wish I'd have been there for that outdoor breakfast. That is a real cookout. He still wants to feed you the morning and during the day and of evening with spiritual food. And then he commissioned Simon Peter, six appearance there. Simon, do you love me? He didn't say you have to be a graduate of seminary to be able to serve him. He said, do you love me? That's the one condition. 
That's the important condition. Don't misunderstand me. If you love him, you'll want to go to seminary and get prepared, of course. But he wants to know whether you love him. And that's the reason multitudes are not serving him today. And then Peter was told that he's to be a martyr. But John, no, he's going to let him live because he's going to have to write this gospel and the three epistles and the book of Revelation. May I say those are the seven appearances there for believers. Those are the appearances that minister to us today. Now, somebody's going to say to me, Preacher, at the very beginning, you mentioned the fact that the races of the world are mankind. The human family was divided into four major divisions at the time he came. And in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. And that you said John was written for the Oriental, that great mass that's in the Orient people of the East. I still want to say that today, and I'd like you to see what I think is one of the, the, one of the greatest, most profound truths. And the fingerprints of the Spirit of God are here. At the time of the birth of Christ, there was a great expectation throughout the heathen world. That was the strangest thing. It was among all peoples. Suetonius, the historian, he says that an ancient and definite expectation had spread throughout the East that a ruler of the world would at about that time arise in Judea. And Schlegel, the German scholar, mentions in one of his books that Buddhist missionaries traveling to China, met Chinese sages going to seek the Messiah, and it was about 33 A.D. There was an expectation throughout the world at that time that he might come, and it was out of the mysterious East that there came wise men to Jerusalem, saying, where is he? that's born king of the Jews. The marvel is that this gospel, so definitely designed to meet the need of believers, it's also designed for the oriental mind as no other is. And who do you mean by orientals? Someone will say again. Well, the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the uncounted millions in India and in China, that area of the world that even to this good day we know so little about, what about Tibet, outer Mongolia? What do we know about the world really over there today? It's still the mysterious East. We do know this, that there is fabulous wealth there, and right next to it is abject poverty. Strange area. Out of this land of mystery came the wise men. They're bringing gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh for him. 
There are a lot of questions to be answered there, but we're not dealing with that aspect of it today. Out of that land of mystery they came. That oriental splendor that we've heard so much about reveals the lavish display of unbelievable wealth, and it is still there. Material riches, power, gaudy grandeur, ornate palaces, priceless gems, and it has so entranced the West that when Columbus started out for this country, we give him credit for discovering America, but he wasn't looking for us. He was trying to find a way to get yonder to the mysterious East, a new way, in order that they might bring something of the wealth that was there. But by the side of that wealth, there is extreme poverty of the basis of it, dire destitution, Millions living in squalor and misery. Their wealth of the, that many of them have are just the rags that are on their backs. One hundred million will die of starvation in that area in this next decade, we're told. Somebody says, well, why don't we send food to them? There's not enough to go around. Our decision is what hundred million will starve. Will it be these or those? the poverty of it. But the interesting thing is that in their poverty they were crying out for help, and even wealth had found no solution to the problems of life. The Orient gave freest reign to human desires. No place has had the freedom. I would recommend to the hippies, go to the Orient. You can do it over there. You can do your thing there. That's for sure. They've had that, but there was no satisfaction. They've had these great pagan religions, Buddhism, Shintoism, Hinduism, Confucianism, and Mohammedanism, but it was out of that area with all that they had that they came and said, wise men, where is he that's born king of the Jews? We've seen his star in the east. We've come to worship him. They needed salvation, and they had none. No religion ever gave that to them. And that's the reason these people in that mysterious East have reveled in the gospel of John as no others have. It's a mind today that will revel in the gospel of John. And the Lord Jesus can meet the need of this type of mind as John reveals, because... John tells us that the mystery touched the misery of the world. Out of heaven's glory he came. That one who was even before any beginning can be thought of. And the word became flesh and walked down here among men. The Orient had religion. The, after all, Israel belonged to that area of the world. The Orient had all kinds of religion. They had temples, ornate, hideous, degrading rituals. They had cults of the occult. And what does John tell us? That their first public act of the Lord Jesus was to go into the temple of that day and cleanse it. He's telling them something. These people that worshipped in these degrading temples 
He says that you're going to worship God. He's holy. You'll have to be cleansed. The temple will have to be cleansed. And there can be no compromise with evil or wrong. A religious ruler came to him one night, and John alone tells this, that when he came to our Lord that night, he even said to this religious ruler that had everything religious to his fingertips, he said, you must be born again. You have to have a new life. Get rid of the old religion. He said, I have not come to sew a patch on the old garment. I have come to give you the robe of righteousness that will enable you to stand before a holy God. And that's what that area of the world needed. May I say to you that womanhood was degraded in the Orient. John says that Jesus sat down at a well, had a conversation with a woman, a very questionable character. But she was a woman for whom he died. And he ennobled womanhood because he came born of a woman. He went to a wedding to answer the mockery that they'd made of marriage in all the harems of the East. Christ went to a wedding and put his blessing upon it. Christ fed the multitudes. And then he gave a discourse on the bread of life and then escaped because he did not want them to make him king of their stomachs. That's interesting. It's reported that Buddha said, if I had two loaves of bread, I'd sell one of them to buy hyacinths for my soul. May I say it's too bad that more in the Orient haven't heard his discourse on the bread of life. And the unfortunate thing is that the managers of Vons and Routes and Safeway and Alpha Beta, they wouldn't understand it because they think it's bread and beans on the shelf that's important. And he said it's not. The man in the Orient who hasn't bread and beans will understand that. I'm afraid maybe, maybe some of us miss it today. The Lord Jesus said in this gospel, I'm the light of the world. I'm the bread of life. I'm life, the way, the truth, and the life. And the Orient was wretched and perishing in that day as it is today. And John says, many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, and that believing you might have life through his name. And the thing they needed above everything else is life. As we watched a few days ago, the multitudes here in downtown Los Angeles, and they probably had the biggest crowds here that they've ever had, the Christmas shoppers, they looked like spiritual zombies. They needed life, and they're buying presents. While I was at this point in preparing my message yesterday morning, telephone rang. I answered the phone. The lady said, Dr. McGee, I used to attend the Church of the Open Door, and I went into a cult, and she named it. I won't this morning. She said, I went into this cult, and I've lost the glow that I had when I was down there. And I'm wondering today just where I am. You had some literature you gave me at that time. Would you send it to me again? I want to get back. The Gospel of John is for her. 
Oh, what we need today is life, not religion. Life. There's another question that I'm sure rises in the minds of some of you. You said that this gospel was primarily written for the church and that it is the gospel that will reach and touch the mind of the Orient. But you say that it's the gospel for the wretched man. You don't think believers are the wretched man, do you? I sure do. Paul in Romans 7, 24 says, Oh, wretched man that I am. Who's he talking to? And who's he talking about? Talking to you and me, and he's talking about himself. And he's not an unsaved man there. That's not the statement of an unsaved man. That's a man who'd met Christ on the Damascus Road, but who was trying to live the Christian life in his own strength, and he was ignorant of the Word of God. And that's the reason God had to train the man as he did. I believe that today that the most wretched people in Los Angeles, in fact, there are two groups. One's the unsaved man who tried to drink his way through the other is the uninstructed Christian, who uh, Moody put it in his quaint way in his day. He says some Christians have just enough religion to make them miserable. There are a lot of Christians today that are compromising, pussyfooting, running with the hare and hounds. At least they're trying to go with all crowds and trying to please everybody today. And they live for the devil six days a week and try to live for God one day a week, and they lack that all-important something of security. They have what the psychologist is emphasizing now. They are insecure. And that's the reason that a great many put the Bible under their arm and a great many of them learn a few Christian cliches and join a little group and lean on them because they are insecure and they're not living for God or growing today in grace and in the knowledge of Him. They are miserable. That woman was miserable yesterday. And there's some of you sitting here this morning. You can put up a good front, but you're miserable. That's the miserable man, the wretched man that I am. The Christian who tries to keep up a front, he's insecure. And he doesn't dare say he's a sinner. The first time I mentioned that in the Church of the Open Door, I got a half a dozen letters. When people said, don't you dare call me a sinner. I've been a member of the Church of the Open Door for so many years. You're a sinner. Why don't you tell him about it and get the thing straightened out? So the Spirit of God can move in your life with power and bring blessing to you. Oh, I could give you quotations and bore you to tears this morning. Russell Kirk has made the, the statement, disciples of Sigmund Freud notwithstanding... This commentator declares that there's nothing wrong with a sense of guilt. On the contrary, the man who thinks himself guiltless is either stupid or abnormal. And a society which has denied the reality of personal guilt soon becomes a decadent and indolent culture. And that's the reason that the Orient, many have responded to the gospel. They don't mind coming in and saying, I have no front to put up. I do not need a status symbol. I have none. I'm a sinner. Oh, how that would make you happy today. 
with joy in your heart that everything's been made right with God. Quit trying to please the little crowd. Quit trying to please the other. Take a stand for God and stand tall and see how it feels. But we need, need to stay still long enough for him to talk to us in his word. We need to, sh uh, to sit at Jesus' feet, as Mary did. May I be personal, and probably I should confess. My problem is I've been like Martha. I have really been busy with the pots and pans. I must confess I've been in a rush. I was in a rush before I got here, trying to do too many things. Don't keep up the front. Many people think of Ernest Hemingway being a swashbuckling, great big brave man. Do you want to know what his biographer says about him? His he-man swagger and the toothy grin camouflaged a soul less in the family of Jack London than of Edgar Allan Poe. In other words, he had a hang-up. He had the undruggable consciousness of something wrong. Ernest Hemingway. And they say, oh, in, the, in these books, aren't they wonderful? Oh, all about these big brave men. The undruggable consciousness of something wrong. You have that this morning, you can't get rid of it. Oh, you can if you will come to him and be honest. I must confess, we try to do too many things. We need today to sit at Jesus' feet. Living Prophecies translates Hosea 6.6, 6, which is not a translation, but a tremendous interpretation. I don't want your sacrifices, God says. I want your love. I don't want your offerings. I want you to know me. That's what he says today. I want you to know me. God wants you to know him. That's the reason the Gospel of John's written. And the reason Christians are miserable today, they are too far from him. I liked the line he used, the indruggable consciousness of something wrong. No matter how much we try to drown it out, whether it's with video games, social media, hobbies, or something much more intense, we can't shake the feeling that something is not as it ought to be. Then he ends his sermon by saying, The reason Christians are miserable is because they're too far from God. If you want to hear about Christians who live their faith out well, work to fulfill the Great Commission with vigor, and sometimes pay the ultimate price, February 10th, which is next week for those listening in real time, and for those of you who aren't, great news, you can check it out immediately. Anyway, on February 10th, Martyrs and Missionaries will drop. We'll explore the lives of people you've heard of, like Amy Carmichael or David Brainerd, to people you probably haven't heard of, like Darlene Rose or John and Betty Stamm. I'm very excited for this one. When the trailer for the show launches, it'll be put in this feed so you can just click on the description and subscribe really easily. So don't miss it and tell a friend. As always, thanks for listening. I'm Elise, and this is Revive Radio. Revive Radio.